0: Plans. Every one of us makes plans. There are pl- we make plans to travel. We make plans for our future. If you're in business, you know that to start that business, you had to write a business plan. There are plans for business. Every NFL team that plays today, the college teams that played yesterday, they all came up with a game plan. A plan to to how they're going to uh, attack the team that they're playing with. Uh, People who get married plan for their weddings. And sometimes they plan for years for those weddings. You name it, we all make plans. But the problem with plans is that no matter how much we try, No matter how much we try to plan, no matter how detailed we get, we humanly cannot control every contingency. We plan a vacation. Several years ago, Charlene and I planned a vacation. We're at that point in our lives where now we get to plan our vacations, and it's just the two of us. And so we planned a vacation, and we were sitting there talking. I said, where do we want to go? Where have we not been that we want to go? And we both said, let's go to Vermont. We've never been to Vermont. Let's go to Vermont. So we planned this trip to Vermont. We bought plane tickets. We made hotel reservations. We were going online and looking at things to see and do in Vermont. That was in February of 2020. And we had to cancel all of our plans because of this thing called COVID. You make plans. You detail. You get sick. There's a change in the weather. Or lo and behold, there's a computer glitch and the whole airline system goes down and your plane gets canceled. Your flight gets canceled. You plan for business and you have all the plans and all of a sudden the market drops. Investors pull out. You plan for the big game. You have all the players ready. And then in practice that week, your star player tears an ACL. Now you have to change all the plans. When I think about plans... I often reflect on the street wisdom of the former heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Mike Tyson. He was in in a press conference. It was was before he had a fight with Evander Holyfield. Then somebody asked him what his plan was for the fight. And Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. We all have a plan until all of a sudden we don't. Now, it's not wrong to make plans, but we need to realize when we make plans, we rarely are able to carry out our plans exactly how we envision them because in life, there are just too many moving parts. God has a plan. God has always had a plan And unlike us, God is not swayed by the moving parts or the delays or even the foolish acts of his creatures. God has the ability to bring about his plan and he is patient enough to work that plan around you and me. God's plan at the very beginning was to create a world, to create a place where his creatures would live in harmony. To create this place where his creatures would cultivate a culture and a society where his name would be honored and glorified and where they would live in peace and harmony. But sin entered the world. Genesis 3 tells us that sin entered the world through the choices, the decisions of Adam and Eve. And it seemed that God's plan was to go awry, but God had already planned for that contingency. He knew that was going to happen. And in fact, as he's talking to them and the serpent in Genesis 3 and verse 15, he tells the serpent that one day the offspring of the woman would crush his head. God had a plan. His creatures, however, in their sinful behavior, sometimes unwittingly do all they can to thwart God's plan and and you read from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis 6 and it is so bad That God says, that's it, we got to start over. We're going to wash everything away, and we're going to start again. And he starts with Noah. And Genesis 9, as he's talking to Noah after the flood, promises one, that he reminds him that human life is sacred, and he reminds him that he's never going to destroy the earth that way again. And it seems like maybe things are going to be okay, but there's sin right away, because sin is part of our nature. And by the time you get to Genesis 11, instead of spreading out and multiplying and filling the earth, the people decided to gather in one place and to build a ziggurat to the stars, and they're going to worship not God but the stars. And so God has to move things along. The confounding of languages is not a punishment. It is God saying, if you would have obeyed, And if you would have spread out through the earth, there would have been a natural development of language and culture. But since you're choosing not to, I need to move it along. And so people move out. But God's plan, God's plan hasn't been thwarted. In Genesis 12, he reaches out to a pagan worshiper named Abram. And he promises Abram, if you follow me one day, I will bless all nations through you. Abram and Sarah, soon Abraham and Sarah, as he was called later on, finally have a child when they are like 197. You know, Abraham was 100 years old. That means he was 113 when the kid was a teenager. Okay, just let that soak in a little bit. And, and yet that was God's plan. Isaac is born, Isaac has two sons, one of them Jacob, eventually his name becomes Israel, he has 12 sons, and, and yet his sons are kind of rapscallions. And Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, the first three, who should have, one of them should have gotten the blessing of what God is going to do, all did things that disqualified them, so that fell upon Judah. But Judah almost ruined the plan before it began. And yet, through the desperate act of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, an heir was born, and the plan, the promise, the covenant was still intact. You're saying, Pastor Scott, why are you telling us all this? I thought we were in the book of Ruth. This is very significant to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth happens in the middle of a time called the Judges. As we've said, the time is when people, again, were doing whatever was right in their own eyes And and, and yet God's plan is intact because God's plan doesn't depend on you and me. God's plan is God's work only. And yet he invites us into it. Today we're going to see as we look at the last act of the drama of Ruth, we're going to see how God worked in divinely orchestrating his plan through the daily lives of, of our two key actors in this drama we call Ruth. Act 4 begins in verse 1 of chapter 4. Remember, Act 3 ended with Ruth being told, wait, Boaz is going to take care of things, just wait. So the curtain comes up on Act 4, scene 1, and we're at the city gate. It says here in verse 1, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town and sat, town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Act 4 opens and Boaz is sitting at the city gate. This is where the, the business of the town took place. Uh, in, in our mind, think of it somewhat akin to the government center. You know, if you go over down here on County Farm Road to the DuPage County Government Center, you've got your courts, you've got all your clerks and everything. You've got all the different things that happen. That's where the county board meets. Well, in those days, that was the city gate. Business was transacted at the city gate. Disputes were settled at the city gate. Decisions were made at the city gate. So Boaz is there and he's there just as the other kinsman redeemer comes along. You know, Boaz had told Ruth, I will do as you ask, but I'm not first in line. Boaz knew that there was another. And Boaz not only is an honorable man, he's also a very wise man to know that if we don't do things properly, it could mess this whole thing up. So he says, I'm going to go take care of it. Boaz reaches and gathers 10 elders now I don't know why the writer tells us 10 elders I don't know what the significance of that is I, I I just know that that's what they tell us and there's a lot here that they don't tell us but he gathers 10 elders of the city around and he says he says to the uh, kinsmen redeemer uh, to them sit here and they did so Then he says to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. So Naomi gathers them together and uh, he presents this proposal. And I'm going to tell you now, Naomi is, Boaz is not only wise, he's not only honorable. Boaz is a very shrewd businessman and he buries the lead. And I'll explain that in a minute. So he honors the man. He acknowledges to him that he's first in line to redeem the land that Naomi needs to sell which belonged to Elimelech. As I said there's not there's a lot of detail left out. We don't know how she had the legal right to sell it because she was a woman in a patriarchal society and it really wasn't her land it was Elimelech's. The best that scholars have come up with is to some degree someone along the way namely a close relative said you know what if we do this right. We can help Naomi. We can benefit her. And so there, he's working together. Boaz, in the presence of the witness, asks this man if he wants to redeem the land. What that means is he buys the land and he brings it back into the family. We don't know who owns it, but we know he's bringing it back and somehow Naomi will benefit. And if he chooses not to, Boaz says, I'll take care of it, but I'm giving you right first right of refusal. Notice what the man says. I will redeem it, he said. Doesn't give a lot of thought. Doesn't give a lot of thinking process. Just says, you bet, I'll do it. He'll redeem the land. Now, I'm just, let me give you a little sanctified imagination here. We're not in a huge metropolis. This is the village of Bethlehem. Uh, It's been noted several times throughout the entire drama of Ruth that people in the town are fully aware of Naomi's return. And they're fully aware that her daughter-in-law, Ruth, also a widow and a Moabite, has come with her. It may be that this first kinsman redeemer is thinking, hmm, I can keep this land. There's nobody to stand up for Naomi. And nobody really, I mean, Ruth, nice kid and everything, but she's a Moabite, so she doesn't really have any standing in the community so I can buy this land and my family will benefit and I don't have to worry about them. We don't know. What we do know is that Boaz, in the presence of ten witnesses, reminds him of his obligation under the rules of what is known as the levirate marriage. Listen to this. The guy says, I'll redeem it. i got to imagine there's a, a dramatic pause there i got to imagine Boaz is going to choose his words carefully. I see Boaz sitting there at the city gate with everyone else, and I see him lean in just a little bit because this is a point that needs to be made. And he says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. The idea was when you redeemed it, the dead person's name stayed with the property. And what he's actually telling him is, when you dot, get that, you acquire, you choose to marry Ruth, and you choose to have an heir through her, and her family gets all the that family gets all the property. And so you're buying this land to just give it away. The leveret marriage is something that's described in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. The leveret marriage is an act of God's grace to protect women in a culture that was patriarchal, in which only men had the right to own property. The passage in Deuteronomy 25 describes that there are two brothers. Two brothers, both married. One of the brothers dies and thus his wife is left as a widow, and the living brother should then is obligated. It's it's one of those things, it's a it's like a social obligation that he is to go and marry the widow, his sister-in-law, and to have an heir through her. They had no children when the brother died, have an heir through her, and then that land stays in the brother's, his brother's family. Now, Deuteronomy tells us that if the living brother refuses, and it says it this way, refuses to show that kindness and grace to his dead brother's wife, she can take him to the elders. And they will call in the living brother, and they will challenge him. And if, I love this part, if he still refuses, if he is stubborn and still refuses, in front of the elders, she can reach down and yank his sandal off and then spit in his face, that's in the Bible, people, and spit in his face in the presence of the elders and says, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family. From this then on, the Bible says, his whole family line will be called the family of the unsandaled. You really don't want that showing up in your Ancestry.com research. He's the family of the unsandaled. Why do I tell you that? Let's go back to scene one. Boaz says, you're going to rec- on that, the re- here's the rest of the story. You acquire this land, you acquire Ruth, and now you're responsible to provide an heir. And then all of that land goes to the son, the, the, the kind of son as it would be, of Mahalan. He would be named Malan, who was Ruth's husband. At this, the guardian and the redeemer said, I can't redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. Now, it's, what's funny is this guy's name is never known. We don't know who he is. But here's what he does. And listen to this, verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel... For the redemption and transfer of property become final, one property took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This is what the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So this is kind of a a, a veiled reference in a way to the Deuteronomy 25 passage, except this time he's taking off his sandal on his own. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So now this guy goes walking through town, back home to find another sandal because Boaz has his sandal. It's kind of like the deed of the property. Boaz announces to the elders and to all the people, today you are witnesses. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Mahalan. I have also required... Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. The elders are all pre- and all the people at the gate said, "We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring of the Lord. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We'll come back to that." What a blessing. What a hope. What a reference. A reference to Tamar, the mother of Perez, born out of a desperate act with her father-in-law and uh, Judah. On the surface, this is merely a business transaction, and those are really merely nice words. But we know the rest of the story. You see, throughout this drama of Ruth, as an audience, we have had glimpses of God's work. And it's a good reminder for us time and time again is that God's work in a real way is carried out in practical, routine, mundane ways. God's plan is often carried out in our normal routines. Hang on to that. God's plan is often carried out In our normal routines. Now I know there are good and godly people. I remember hearing it when I was a student in in Bible college and seminary. Good and godly, well-meaning people talk about dreaming big dreams for God. Talk about doing great things for God. Talk about radically selling out for God. Talk about being in full-time Christian service. Nothing wrong with all of that. There are people that God does give big dreams and and they they radically sell out and they're in full-time Christian service, which doesn't mean that the rest of you are part-time Christians. We're all full-time Christians. But sometimes when we hear that, sometimes when we read those statements, sometimes when we look at the great things that people have done, we get the idea that if I'm not just killing it for God right now, maybe I'm kind of second rate. But from this scene, Boaz is doing God's perfect will simply by transacting business, by simply being a man who is naturally a protector and a provider. It seems to be his nature He's simply doing the next right thing. He's not thinking, you know, if I do this, she's going to have a son who's going to have a son who's going to have a son who's going to be David, the shepherd king. You know what? From the line of David is going to come the Messiah. I am doing great things for God. No, Boaz is saying, this is the right thing. I need to take care of this widow and her mother. Nobody else is stepping up. I've been asked to do this. I'm going to do the right thing. And by doing the right thing that's just transacting business, he becomes part of God's plan. When you and I are sensitive to God, when you and I center our lives around loving God and loving others, It's in those simple things that we are already doing God's work. There may come a time when God sets something big in front of you, something that is just a bigger vision than you can imagine. But I'm going to tell you so often When we minister and live in the routine, loving God and loving others, we are doing the work that God has set before us, and that's important work. Remember the words of Jesus, the ultimate kinsman-redeemer. They're recorded in Matthew 10, 42. And if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of these, my followers, you will surely be rewarded. God blesses the little routine things done in his name and he's pleased. Some of you have heard me tell the story. I ought to have Charlene come up and tell it, but then I want to eat this afternoon. Some of you probably heard me tell the story of a friend of Charlene's that I got to meet once. Charlene called her Aunt Jenny. I became acquainted with Aunt Jenny as Charlene and I were dating Uh, because Charlene would sometimes come from the the campus mailbox and have a little note from Aunt Jenny. There would be a little gospel tract in there and a little note of encouragement. It was a few years later that we were on our way somewhere, coming back from somewhere, and we stopped in to see Aunt Jenny. I think she lived down in Bolingbrook. And Charlene walked in. Oh, there was a big hug. And how are you doing, Aunt Jenny? Oh, I keep busy. Oh, what are you doing? Well, I have my literature ministry. That, and she had this table, and there was all these little note cards, and there were these little tracks, and there were stamps and envelopes. And she had these—I think she did teach good news clubs, or—but there were people that she had met along the way, and she would, as she got to know these people, and all she would send out letters to them and notes of encouragement. Her literature ministry. The other thing that she was known for was being in the nursery at church. And she took the little babies, the infants, and she would rock them and sing to them. Well, several years later, when we moved back up here, she passed away. And we went down to the the visitation. And I remember standing, listening to people. And I could hear people talk about getting their letters from Aunt Jenny. And then somebody else would talk about, and she loved the babies. She always loved the babies. She was, and I thought, wow, what a legacy. She wasn't killing it for God in a way that people were writing her books and going to her seminars and, and watching her videos. She just faithfully, simply did what God put before her. God's plan is often carried out through normal routines. If you're just an Aunt Jenny who writes a note to somebody on a regular basis to encourage them, who takes a baby so that a young mother can have a break, maybe can go to a service or listen or can just have some time to breathe, you're doing a great work for God. If you've taken a meal to a neighbor today or call somebody today and say, How are you feeling? I, I missed you today. I just want to encourage you. You're doing a great work for God. If you see your neighbor out struggling to shovel snow and you go shovel snow for them, you're doing a great work for God. God works through the normal routines. Boaz was just transacting business, but it was a great work for God. Scene two opens, and we move things along quite a bit. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said... To Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Boaz and Ruth are married. Don't rush past that. Boaz was a man who wondered if he had missed his chance. And he's married to a woman, a Moabite, who had wondered if there was ever any hope for her to be married. And they have a son, an heir. The author tells us this, this there's a woman in the town, don't call Naomi Mara anymore, which means bitter. They call her Naomi, her name, which means blessed, which means peace, which means gentle. And they say, praise be to the Lord. He's not left you without a guardian or a kinsman redeemer. In other words, Naomi, God didn't leave you hopeless. The Lord hasn't left you impoverished. The Lord has not left you out in the cold. If perchance you are feeling alone or invisible or empty today, can I remind you, God has not forgotten you. He knows right where you are. He restored Naomi. He restored the land of Elimelech. He redeemed the family name. He gave them an heir. Naomi, he's blessed you with a daughter-in-law. He loves who loves you. What a, what a statement. Who's worth more than seven sons? That tells you a lot about the character of Ruth. Ruth who did not grow up worshiping Yahweh. Ruth who grew up in a Moabite culture, who somehow has seen that Yahweh is the one to follow. Can you imagine Grandma Naomi? We had dinner with friends the other night. We welcomed them to the club. First-time grandparents. What's really hard is that she was one of our kids in our youth group. (laughs) So we were feeling our age. And, you know, it's funny when I said, hey, welcome to the club. They beamed. Can you imagine Grandma Naomi? She came to Bethlehem thinking life was over for her. She came to Bethlehem thinking there was no hope. She came to Bethlehem thinking God had forgotten her. And now here she is holding her brand-new grandson. The Bible says in verse 16, Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Oh, I can just imagine. And the woman said, and the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. Obed is a name that kind of sounds like one who serves, one who provides, one who guards. His name, Obed. And then the author gives us a little snippet of a genealogy, and then we end with a bigger genealogy. The audience is told that Obed is the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. We know the rest of the story. More is coming than anyone could imagine. But note this, God's plan is bigger than what we see in the moment. And can I just put it this way? God's plan is always bigger than what we see in the moment. See, there was Naomi, and there was Ruth, and there was Boaz. There was the shoeless dude. There was the women of the town, the ten elders, the snarky overseer. None of them had an inkling. None of them had even a a hope, a pipe dream. None of them had any clue that the shepherd King David would come out of this union. All they're doing is celebrating the son that's been born to Naomi, that the Elimelech's land will stay in the family that Naomi and Ruth are taken care of. That's all they know at that point. None of them could imagine in their wildest dreams that from this act, the promised Messiah, the good shepherd, Jesus, the divine Kimson kinsman redeemer would come from this line. They only knew in the moment that God had worked at the time to simply bring relief to two widows who were just living life one day at a time. God's plan is bigger than what we see in the moment. I imagine the curtain closing and the narrator coming out. And the narrator says, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Neshon. Neshan the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Jesse- Obed. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. The drama ends with this epilogue. It reviews the line of Perez that we had seen earlier, that Perez was the son of Tamar. Perez is the son of a union between Judah and his neglected, abused, forgotten daughter in law, Tamar. Their stories in Genesis 38. Judah's own self protective nature almost derailed the covenant. But God. What the author doesn't tell us, what the author doesn't let us know, we have to discover elsewhere in Scripture. You see, this is a statement, and this is the way that lines of ancestry were written in the Old Testament, in, in the nation of Jerusalem, nation of Israel. Women were not included. Women were not included in the genealogy. They were typically not part of it. And foreign women were definitely not part of the genealogy. They weren't supposed to even be part of the community. But God. Tamar was a Canaanite. She's the mother of Perez in those desperate circumstances. Because God's divine orchestration was at work. Boaz, is the son of Solomon, and that, okay, great, but when we go to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, we discover that Boaz's mother was Rahab. Rahab, a harlot from Jericho, a Canaanite, one who was not supposed to be part of the community, but God. And you wonder, I wonder, maybe the reason Boaz wasn't married is because everybody knew that his mother was a Canaanite and nobody wanted to have their daughter marry somebody who was part Canaanite. But Ruth could. Boaz, the father of Obed, but his mother was Ruth. We know that. Ruth, a Moabite from a nation that was not even supposed to be part of the assembly of Israel. A widow with no rights, but a lady who loved her mother-in-law, who sacrificed for her mother-in-law, who put all of her desires, all of her needs, all of her family, all of her religion, all of her land over here and said, I will follow you and I will follow you your God, and where you die, I will die, and where you are buried, I will be buried. And we see her seen and honored, and I believe loved by Boaz. I want to leave you with this reminder this morning. While I've spoken about God's divine orchestration in this drama called Ruth, I think there's another truth that stands out for all of us to remember. You see, no matter who you are, I believe in this drama, I learned that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what you're facing now, I want you to always remember this. God sees you. God sees you. But added to that, God knows you. God sees you. But there's more. See, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of heaven invites you. He invites you into relationship. He invites you into relationship with him through his son, But that comes from acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And when you acknowledge that, God forgives you. And God's forgiveness is complete and total. The psalmist says he removes our transgression as far as the east is from the west. God knows you. God sees you. God invites you. God forgives you. And God loves you. God loved Ruth when she was just a child growing up in Moab. God loved Ruth when she became the wife of Mahlon. God loved Ruth when her husband died and now she didn't know what to do. God loved Ruth when she said, I'll forsake everything and stick with you, Naomi. God loved Ruth when she went out into the field taking great risk and and gleaned from the sheaves. God loved Ruth when she went to Boaz in fear and trepidation and made a very strange proposal inviting him to redeem her. God loved Ruth and gave her a son. I don't know how the years shape up. I don't know if Ruth and Boaz ever knew their great-grandson. I doubt it since he was the youngest of seven and life wasn't very long at the time. But God knew. God knows you. God sees you. God invites you. God forgives you. God loves you. Nothing can get in the way. Of God's plan, He invites you to be part of that plan as you have put your faith in Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. And it's not something that now you have to go out and try to write a book or change a town or you know start a, a, a business. Or it's just love God, love others, live the life that God places in front of you, and trust Him to do His work through the routine of your life. Father, what a great reminder today. Sometimes we need to be reminded that it's not about the big stuff. It's just about the little, the normal stuff. I pray this morning, Father, that as we are in this place in this time, as we'll take a few minutes and remember your ultimate gift of love is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that we would be mindful of the fact that you're a God who knows, sees, invites, forgives, and loves us. And may we rest in your presence and keep our eyes open for the next right thing to do in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.